Welcome to Media Talk USA for September. I'm Jeff Jarvis. On this week's podcast, is that light we see at the end of the tunnel? Is there a future for the news business? And what does it look like? And is going hyper-local the solution to our problems? Or is it getting hyper-personal? We take a look at the news from around the media industry, mergers, alternative funding schemes, and feuding bloggers. Oh my. And we ask our panelists, does journalism need government intervention? Media Talk USA from GuardianAmerica.com and PaidContent.org. Welcome to the September edition of Media Talk USA from The Guardian. School is back in session here at the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism, and we're all eager to learn from this month's distinguished panelists from the Garden State. Jim Wilsey is editor-in-chief of the Star-Ledger, and in prior lives, he was editor and publisher of the New York Daily News. He had the bad sense to hire me at both institutions, and we worked together at the San Francisco Examiner. Welcome, Jim. Good morning, Jeff. My pleasure. And we have royalty in the booth. It's the queen of hyperlocal, a novelist, former New York Times columnist, and founder of BaristaNet.com, which just celebrated its fifth anniversary serving Montclair, New Jersey, and environs. All hail Deb Glenn. Hi. So, how do we begin our media days today? What did you do? Did you read a paper? I read a paper. Which one? I read the Star-Ledger, and then I read the New York Times, and neither one of them was on newsprint. Aha. Deb? I'm sorry. All I did was read my email, and I tweeted. I tweeted because I couldn't find Sweet and Low in the McDonald's, and it started a whole avalanche of comments because it tweets over to my Facebook. There there was a time when I would get up uh, deep in the bowels of New Jersey at around 6 in the morning, and I would drive down to the local drugstore, open with a penknife the the bales of newspapers were there because I couldn't get all the ones I wanted, and I would take one copy of my paper, The Times, The Wall Street Journal, the local daily, bring them home, make myself a cup of coffee, sit in a chair and read them. This morning, I reached under the bed, picked up my Apple Power Book, read my own paper online, and then read the New York Times, and then sort of browsed around at uh, anything else I wanted to say. Now, I'm the editor of the paper, and if I'm not reading it on newsprint, that, that tells us something. Media Talk USA. First up on the agenda is the question, is local the salvation? We've heard the doom and gloom, the mourning and mewling about the fate of news and newspapers over and over again. And that's just on this podcast. Today, we look for hope. Here at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, we undertook the New Business Models for News project to answer the tough question we've heard again and again, namely, what happens to news when a city's newspaper dies? We brought in business analysts and talked to news companies, bloggers, and entrepreneurs, and then drew up models for what we believe is a sustainable future of news. News won't be owned by one company and one publication anymore. It will be the product of an ecosystem of many players operating under many different motives, means, and models. We concentrated on a few. First, hyperlocal. We discovered that it's a business with some bloggers bringing in up to $200,000 a year in ad revenue. We believe that their business can be optimized with the creation of networks, metro, and very local selling advertising and e-commerce. And so we project a profitable business bringing in as much as $300,000 a year. We also looked at the shape of the new news organization, the successor to the newsroom. It will bring reporting, beat, and investigative to its city, but it will have new roles working collaboratively with this network of local sites, selling ads for them and reporting with them. It's a smaller business. We projected 46 editors, a total staff of 90, $20 million of revenue, but it's a profitable business at 30% margins. Feels like the good old days, eh? We can imagine a sustainable future of news. This is just one model. We won't know what that future will really look like until we stop whining and start building. So out of this project, I became a cockeyed optimist about the future of news. 
panel? Well, I guess you're probably alone. <laughs> From what I hear. <laughs> what about you? You're building the future of news, aren't you, Deb? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think as I go along, uh, we've been successful so far, but there, you know, more and more entrants come in, and and although you say the more the merrier in general, I, you know, you have to worry once you become the old guy, which at five years old we have, that some new guy's going to come in, do it better, do it smarter, do it cheaper, or sell it cheaper. So, you know, we're not resting on our laurels. We're we're like everybody else, you know. Hoping that the form, you know, we keep tinkering, we keep uh, trying to work smarter every day, and and hoping that the magic holds. The the new model for the news study, I think, has a lot of good ideas in it. I, I kind of, uh, not surprisingly, would argue with the premise that uh, here's here's how it would work the ecosystem in your phrase in a good sized market when the paper dies. Uh, my, not just my preference, but my forecast would be that there still remains a newspaper in a radically different uh, format than what we're used to, and we can talk about that later if you want, but that there is still kind of a, a beating heart of, uh, of daily journalism that involves a newsprint product. But I guess my question becomes how a big institution with a, a thousand employees can remake itself into what is definitely a new and smaller world. I don't think it can. I think we're proving that. Uh, you know, we got into this fix, we being newspapers, by being almost willful about not thinking about the future and in a, unequipped to change. In order to get from where we are here to the future of news, the big organizations are going to have to radically remake themselves and they're going to have to leave behind the, the very things that were once assets, the, the barriers to entry, having a big plant and having a fleet of trucks. That used to be good news. Now it's bad news. Well, part and parcel of this, I think, in, the, in this new model's vision is that you work in a network. You collaborate. Now, I've taken the two of you into rooms before because you're both friends and you both work in New Jersey. And I keep thinking there should be things that Baristanet and the Ledger should be doing together. And you did do one project in print, a, a guide to Montclair, but we haven't found a marriage happening. No, and, and, I, and I would say a lot of that is our fault. I'll, I'll, I'll help Debbie on this. For that kind of collaboration to work in an ongoing way and to find others like it, you have to leave behind the sort of institutional bureaucracy that newspapers are so good at creating. And we were not as agile and as responsive as we needed to be for, I think, both of us to feel uh, as good as we could have about that partnership. What should have happened? What could have happened? What was the potential for a relationship with the big old paper and you, the startup? I think it still could happen. I mean, I think Jim and I are friends. We like each other. um, And uh, all we need is another idea, another spark, and we could do it. Um, I think that Jim's had some major problems to deal with. He's having to, you know, just, you know, lost, uh, what was it, 40% of the newsroom, having to rebuild, having really major economic problems. And, you know, you know, frankly, I spend a lot of time sticking to my knitting, too. You know, I mean, um, I'm, I'm sitting there worried about advertisers and, and what do they need and somebody's ad expired. You know, I mean, we're, we're all in, in our own trenches doing our own work. Um, but I, I don't think that it's gone or, or that, it couldn't, that it couldn't be done. I think we just have to come up with a new idea. Well, part, part of the idea in the modeling that we did is that you will succeed better, Deb, if you're a member of networks, if you can grow a little larger. Right now you sell ads to merchants in your town for readers in your town and the surrounding area. If there is metro-wide advertising dollars to be had and if someone puts together a network of quality sites like yours, it seems to us that there's value that gets added to Baristanet 
overnight. You know, I, I don't buy that argument that much because I think that um, most of the networks out there are just going to bring down our advertising dollars. They're, ch- they're going to sell cheaper. And that's gonna that's gonna basically dilute it. I mean, right now we got a call a couple months ago from American Apparel, national advertiser, wanted to advertise on our front page at our top price. Tell me how you're gonna do better for me and that being part of a network. What I'm gonna get that's better than my top right. price. Right. Well, networks have cooties because networks do bring in low value advertising. But if in our premise there is not the big old paper that there was, and that's mainly just for the sake of argument to be the toughest thing. I'm not trying to kill papers. Let me be clear on that. But if, if, that, if that money is out there waiting, looking for a home in the marketplace, don't you want a piece of it? Don't you want a piece of the Whole Foods ads and the and – the, the, the We have Whole Foods. Uh-huh. I, I'm not saying that I would turn something away that, that landed in my lap. I'm not saying I'm against it. But I'm just – I just think that um, it's um, – I haven't seen anything that, that would show me that I'm going to make more money th- with that. It's sort of like Google ads. It's a, we do have some Google ads on the site, but we get a check for $126 a month for that. That's about what I get. There, there has to be some value with a medium-sized or, or regional entity that does both news that a strictly hyper-local site can't do and, we would think, sell regional advertising, somewhere between uh, American Apparel, the big national ads, and, and the most local. What I see, you know, as more interesting to me right now than the ad piece would be the editorial piece. Um, ever since it became taboo to um, even take a little tiny piece of an AP story, um, wh- what, you know, I, I would love to see sort of an AP kind of uh, relationship grow where we get your news and, I mean, we do get it and we can link to it and you guys haven't objected to it. But where we – and I know that you also sometimes take news from us and, and say Burstinet reported this. But more formalize that where, where we were getting it almost like a wire service so that we would – that you would push it to us so that we would know. We were both working on um, a crane collapse story up in Montclair State and I think we, we got it very quickly on that. But uh, that's that's the kind of thing where I think there could be some synergies. A lot of people are working. You guys have the actual, you know, AP and are part of it, but I could see some mid-level regional kinds of, of news sharing. Which going is beneficial on. all around, right? Beneficial the, all around. The ledger gets distribution. You get content. Potentially the ledger gets more audience and advertising ability. And they get you content get, from us. That's part of the And you get content, whole... right. We can even look at NPR stations are trying to figure out this future as well. Uh, NPR nationally is growing, but they have the same problem newspapers really have at a local level. Uh, I sat down with Vivian Schiller, the president and CEO of NPR, and heard about their initiatives in local. Well, the station is in some jeopardy because as new means of distribution come along, their value as distributors diminishes. What's your, and I know this is an issue you've been dealing with in trying to help the stations find their own sustainable future. Have you found the silver bullet or what's the nearest thing that you you think is the strategy for them? Well, there's no silver bullet to anything in journalism. It's all going to be test and learn and and, and the answer is going to be a lot of things. Digital delivery breaks down the barriers that were traditional to broadcast radio. So what, but what the stations have going for them that will be the key to their long-term not survival and growth is local content. And in that way, they will ensure um, their place in the hearts and minds of the, of the local community. So you have a new program called Argo. Right. Explain that. Yeah. So Project Argo, this is, a, this is a pilot program. It's not supposed to be the solution to all things. It's, it's a test concept. We, um, and the idea is that we are, we are working with 12 stations 
across in various parts of the country. And each of them, the, the project entails um, hiring an online journalist in each one of those communities who will focus on a single topic, a single vertical, and will drill down and will do both original reporting and also curate content around that subject. We're not controlling it. This is not a center editorial control at all, but we want to provide the platform, the technology, the thought leadership to try to enable this platform. So we will um, launch that um, a little bit later this year, and, and, and hopefully this is a model for expansion. I visited with Vivian and her management team yesterday in Washington, and in a sense, this might be the beginning of what you talk about, Deb, in an Associated Press for local tied up to national for a new structure here, a platform. I think the real question here is there's an opportunity to build a platform for this kind of cooperation, but who's going to do it? Is NPR a likely player? I don't know whether NPR is or isn't, but sitting here listening to Vivian, uh, I was wondering if if part of the model, you know, we we get in our own way with the verbiage and the jargon, and it's hard to find words for, for a new model. But is it something like a co-op apartment building where the various members – shareholders, whether they be a, a relatively small hyperlocal site, uh, something that is a, a special vertical that, that deals with, with a topic, maybe over some geographic area, the regional player, which uh, used to be known as newspapers. If you put that together, stitch it somehow, and everybody has uh, an economic interest and, 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 and you solve the, the sorts of issues that you deal with in a big apartment building, but you hire a management firm and it, there's somebody who is responsible for some of the business issues. There would be technical issues. That they take out the garbage and run the elevators. Yeah. 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 And, and, they, and they serve at the pleasure of, of the members. So you, you do have a kind of structure. It's not quite as free form as I understand your, your ecosystem to be. No, I agree. We need we need people to actually put the coal in the oven. Yeah, but the idea that everybody who's involved in the market, whatever that definition right. is, has an interest in having some sort of uh, overseeing management uh, is kind of an attractive one. Deb, you're a, you're a lone wolf. You've been out there doing this on your own. Does that sound attractive or does that sound scary? What that we would have some kind of a, a... cooperative company board structure. Would that be helpful to you? Or Which you is what the Associated Press really has is. been. Right. Uh, it's kind of, you know, there are, there, are, there are institutional issues with the AP now, but the original ethic of the AP is that it was a membership. It was a cooperative. Everybody had a piece of it, and by supporting some sort of central organization, they all benefited by getting news at a lower cost. No, that doesn't, that doesn't sound uh, um, scary or, or it, sounds, it, it sounds excellent to me. It's, it, it, um, well, in fact, the idea of membership we're hearing these days, uh, you know, the, the New York Times plans to follow, we hear uh, NPR and give out tote bags and, and, and have uh, events. The Guardian is considering the same thing. And I was just writing a blog post before I came down here, in fact. I, when I came back from Aspen where I talked to Vivian, um, uh, the head of the Wikimedia Foundation was there and talked about the effort that goes into Wikipedia. They did a calculation of how much time people spend just on the edits, just on the edits. And then they calculated a value to that, a, a nominal value. And it works out to hundreds of millions of dollars a year in value that people contribute to Wikipedia. So the idea of membership in the old days of give me money, I'll give you a tote bag, you can advertise me, I think moves into something else where people do have, as you say, Jim, a stake in this thing and ownership in it and some control over it. Then it starts to get juicy, I think. 
Well, and I think the interesting thing about NPR is that, um, you know, as a leader in this kind of thing, is that um, they do they, – they aren't dependent on advertising the way we are. They have, as you say, people who are contributing money. You were talking before about people contributing at Wikipedia effort. Um, but that might be the solution, you know, that the, the, instead of saying that you have to pay per article, that whole paywall thing, then maybe, like you said, people will pay voluntarily. And, and, and they'll pay because they want the institution to, to survive. And by the way, um, I did jury duty uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, all your readers are on uh, in jury pools because every time they ask them, it, so the, the readership of, of the Star Ledger is alive and well and um, waiting to get on a jury in Newark. But uh, every single time they ask them, "What do you read? What is your what? Are, what are, where do you get your news sources?" I kept hoping somebody would say Barista. <laughs> I was like, "The Ledger. I read the Ledger. I read the Ledger." It's more reassuring to hear they're in a jury pool than in a defendant box. <laughs> <laughs> Media Talk USA, from The Guardian and paid content. Take the hard work out of listening to this fund. Set up your free subscription to Media Talk USA. All the details can be found at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. And now, news from around the world of media. Spider-Man and Mickey Mouse are headed down the aisle in a $4 billion cash and stock deal. Marvel Entertainment and its roster of comic book heroes, including Spider-Man, The Incredible Hulk, and all the X-Men, is set to become part of the decidedly more wholesome Disney entertainment empire. Disney CEO Bob Iger said Marvel had a treasure trove of intellectual property that, quote, transcends gender, age, culture, and geographical barriers. In other words, enough for the princesses, bring on the muscle men. Next, is internet anonymity toast? Google was ordered by a New York State Supreme Court judge to reveal the name of an anonymous blogger who'd badmouthed New York fashion model Laskula Cohen on a blogger.com site called Skanks in New York. Now, once revealed as a blogger, Rosemary Port said she now plans on suing Google for giving up the information and maintains that Cohen brought this upon herself and that she has an expectation of anonymity online. And finally, New York Times Magazine editor Gerald Maserati published a letter explaining how this week's cover story on the New Orleans Medical Center during Hurricane Katrina was funded by ProPublica and the Kaiser Family Foundation. He also said the Times people spent a lot of time shaping and editing the piece. Well, last month we asked whether journalism is becoming a charity case. In this case, the Times was subsidized by outside groups. Is this a viable future for the paper of record? Point an answer to that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, again, let's not get too absolute about any of these. Uh, having a, in effect, a subsidized piece of reporting is not the solution to much of anything, uh, especially public service reporting. But it's an intriguing idea, and uh, if you're if you're trying to imagine a tapestry of news sources, uh, some of which are staff some of which are not, and, and, you know, there's almost as many as the imagination can summon up. One of them, uh, with the, the horribly inefficient process of investigative reporting that is somehow subsidized and doesn't have to pay for itself on a day-to-day basis, is an intriguing idea. And ProPublica uh, has had some successes. What interests me going forward are regional adaptations of that idea. If you, in our state, where Debbie and I have the pleasure of uh, working, a a veritable game preserve of public corruption, (laughs) uh, 
you want to make sure that whatever form or forms it takes, that there's something going on that is holding public officials to account. In your view of a co-op, Jim, and your view of a new local associated press, Deb, I also wonder whether there isn't the opportunity to join together to do collaborative work, collaborative investigations, that, that you're not just doing stories strictly for BaristaNet, but that you can contribute to a larger whole. Is that appealing? I th- yeah, I think it would be great. And I do think that you could, r- you know, raise money um, as a – instead of through advertising and, and you know, and, and say, do you want to support the, um, the Star Ledger Baristanet uh, New Jersey Newsroom Fund for uh, investigative reporting um, and get, you know, maybe you get a tote bag. Um, and um, but I think that there are people who would be, uh, particularly in New Jersey, where you where people realize there's the corruption issue that is a, a, ever present, um, where there are there is some uh, disposable income and there's a high highly educated base. That's I think that's a good good market to tap yeah. into. So putting skanks aside, what's your view on anonymity and the internet? I'm glad that the issue is being raised and I think that anonymity is has, has made the internet and, and the media on the internet a very uncivil place. Um, it's, it's, it's bad on our blog in terms of comments. I've seen it over at the Star Ledger, just as bad on NJ.com. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know what the solution is, but, uh, in fact, we were, we were discussing the possibility of, um, putting something on our comment policy where we, where we requested that people use their real names. And, um, my business partner, Liz George said, well, let's think about this first before we ask them that. Cause I, I sort of, I'm a big believer in using real names, but we have so much Google juice that people are coming back to us all the time and saying that they've been on BaristaNet for one thing or another and their name comes up first on Google Net for whatever this thing was. For Google, I'm sorry, their name comes up on Google, whatever whatever that association was. It, it's it's there forever, and so that that there. In, in other words, while I believe and respect and using my name every time I'm out there, maybe it would cut the conversation down because there are people who, for example aren't supposed to be on the internet during the workday so they can't use their real name. Or if they, if, if they get way in on a controversial issue, then forever in the minds of Googles, their name will be there in that search, in that context. So there's, you know, but generally in terms of civility, I think we've got a huge problem and, um, and I think anonymity is a big part of it. Yeah, it's really two interrelated issues. Should you be able to say whatever it is you want to say without hanging your name on it, unlike, say, a letter to the editor where that's insisted upon, and uh, what should be the rules, if any, for civil discourse. The response to anonymity has been usually let's try to find a way to tamp it down, to play whack-a-mole on all these, these, these people who need their meds who pop up everywhere. The right response may be the opposite. It may be that you encourage real identity, and when you do so, that gets – seen more. So let's say on Bristonet, if you use your Facebook ID and it's a verified ID, your comments will appear on top. Uh, uh, readers can cut out all anonymous comments. Uh, you get more attention if you have a real identification. Would that work? Um, it's an interesting idea. The other idea that we've played with is having a Ning site which is like a Facebook, like a private – and it would be like a barista net with names. So it would be like a mirror site where you could have the anonymous Wild Wild West, but at the same time you would have uh, another barista net that was going along side by side where you actually see your neighbor's faces and know who This goes to one other thing that always bugs me about the internet though, incidentally, is, is this myth that the whole economic being of the internet is based on 
pure traffic. It is how many people come to hit, stay, unique, and so forth. And that's that's always one of the arguments that is offered in favor of having this free feeling, freewheeling, uh, anything goes comments because it generates a lot of traffic. In the old print world, you remember the old print world, Jeff. The, we used to talk about demographics, you know, and and a certain kind of audience was worth more to advertisers than another kind of audience. That's the difference between the New Yorker and the New York Post. When it comes to comments, I think we fall into a trap to just do numbers and not ask ourselves: Are these the kind of users? readers, audience that are of value to an advertiser. And I think anybody who spends a lot of time on some of the comment streams in any big website is going to feel some dismay that these are really the sorts of people who are going to go out and buy a new refrigerator or a new car. Well, it comes back to the idea of membership and your idea, Deb, is that maybe if you're a member of the community and you are there with a stake in it and present that, that that has more value and it has more value in other ways. In our modeling for CUNY, we put in 12 page views per user per month for newspaper sites because that's very common, but that's shameful. Martin Langveld uh, at the Nielsen blog calculated that the amount of time spent on newspaper sites amounts to one half or 1% of the amount of time spent on the internet. So I agree with you that seeking traffic for the sake of traffic and taking in any bum along the way, that doesn't work. But at the same time, we're not nearly uh, as good at, at engagement as we must be. And probably identity has something to do with this and we're still figuring it out. Yeah, which is one of the, the the compelling arguments for the social network aspect of the new journalism model is that you find people that you enjoy talking to. And, and in, over time, it's, there's going to be a sifting process. And if the quality of the, let's call it journalism, is high enough, the audience will find that and support it by by talking to each other and maybe even wanting to be next to your advertiser. Media Talk USA with Jeff Jarvis. The Federal Trade Commission is planning to hold hearings in December uh, about the fate and future of journalism. Uh, at the Aspen Institute, I sat down with John Leibovitz, the chairman of the FTC, who told us about these events. Why are you interested in journalism and what do you expect to accomplish there? Well, we do two things at the FTC, competition and consumer protection. Both of those issues touch on the future of journalism, particularly news uh, in the era we live in. Right now, I think it's fair to say and that there's a consensus that uh, the, uh, the news industry is in some form of crisis or turmoil. And we want to ensure, because news is so important and journalism is so important to the functioning of democracy, uh, that, uh, uh, that it, uh, it continues. And we think that by holding a series of workshops and bringing together stakeholders, journalists, bloggers, economists, um, uh, 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 university faculty who've thought about this issue, um, that we might be able to, we might be able to uh, sort of come up with some ideas about sort of uh, what policymakers or lawmakers might think about doing or refraining from doing going forward. Do we need government in this discussion or do we have enough discussion as is? Are there words that are more terrifying than I'm from the government and I'm here to help? Uh, You know, I appreciate I guess I appreciate the interest that there is a crisis and turmoil and no one would argue with that. The idea that even the most well-meaning government agency is going to help us solve that, uh, I find not terribly appetizing. There are First Amendment issues. I'm not worried about the government as 
you know, that whole, that whole argument that it's incompetent. You know, I mean, I've got for the government, about, but you have to worry about um, back in the days when it was Nixon. You know, back in the day, you, the government, it, it, there's a whole reason there's a wall between um, the government and the press. And that's yeah, yeah, I mean, a few minutes ago, we were, we were talking about the need to have aggressive, unbridled public service reporting in a state like New Jersey so you catch crooked politicians. Uh, I, I have a hard time processing the idea that those are the same people we should turn to in our hour of need and somehow are going to be smart or committed enough to help us see see the light. Well, it's the civil servants that want to help. It's not the corrupt politicians. But, I mean, I, I mean, it, it, that isn't to say that government can't have a good heart or or care about the right things. It's, it, they, or they can muck it up. They can come in and extend copyright law or, or protect old industries and old companies in ways that uh, hurt innovation. They, they could do some bad things here. I mean, the fact is if, if government, whatever that means, uh, legislatures or, or regulatory agencies want to learn about the problem, there's nothing we can do to stop it. They're going to do it. But I would be very cautious about looking to them for any sort of – not just an answer but assistance because as A.J. Liebling said a long time ago, there is no free lunch when it comes to journalism. And I think there would be a price to be paid no matter how hidden it might be at the outset. It all comes back to Liebling and an appropriate end for our podcast. Thank you, Deb. Thank, Thank you. you, Jim. A pleasure. So that wraps it up for another month. Media Talk USA is engineered by Chad Bernhardt and produced by Glenn Osten Anderson. We record the studios of the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. Don't forget to add your comments to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Make sure you subscribe there, too, so don't miss next month's edition, which will be uploaded in the first week of October. I'm Jeff Jarvis. Thank you for listening. Media Talk USA from Guardian America.